This is Thinking Out Loud, a podcast about current events and Christian hope. Have a hard time putting those two things together? You're not alone. Our timelines may be filled with bad news, but at Thinking Out Loud, we believe the gospel speaks to every issue, past, present, and future. And we want this to be your place to process truth. So what does it mean to live in the light of the gospel's eternal truth rather than in the shadow of our never-ending dumpster fires? That's the question animating this conversation between Nathan Rittenhouse and Cameron McAllister, co-founders of Thinking Out Loud, a ministry that wants to move apologetics out of the ivory tower and into your living room. Our hope at Thinking Out Loud is to see ordinary Christians advance the credibility of Christ. One way to do that is to respond to the day's news with genuine peace and resilience. So let's think out loud together about current events and Christian hope. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. Well, this is the first listener-submitted questions episode. So we're thrilled yeah, but, about that. We'll take well, this. But what yeah. I'm not thrilled about is we couldn't track down Stacy. So Stacy got busy. She was the one who was supposed to be moderating yeah. this. So we promised you more of Stacy, and the promise has been delayed. It will happen, but just not on this round. So this is listener submitted questions yeah. where we ask ourselves the questions that you ask us instead of Stacy asking us the questions that you ask us. So there you go. Lead us on, right. Cameron. Yeah, delayed. Yeah, delayed, not broken. That's that's what needs to be. <laughs> said about that promise. Yes, and for those of you who are unaware, Stacy is the lovely voice that you hear in the intro and the outro to this podcast. And, you know, ironically enough, she does a lot of voice work and I think that's the reason why she's not able to be with us this week. So, she's doing good work out there. So, you know, take comfort in that fact. But yes. So, we'll kick off this first listener submitted question. And we've got a very good question. It's a very it's, I think it's one that I have heard a number of times as well. So I know this is a deep struggle for some of us. And speaking of deep, deep struggles, I'm doing a little bit better, but you can no doubt tell that my voice is still probably about a good octave lower than it usually is. I'm almost out of the swamp, but yeah. not quite there yet. I've got a trusty hot beverage here with me to help me out. And uh, Nathan will help me out here too. So other than the fact it sounds like Cameron smoked 40 packs of cigarettes in the last three days, we're, I think we have everything we need to lean into this. That's right. And I've learned my lesson. So here we go. The question has to do, well, it's a two-part. So first of all, it has to do with the relationship between grace and works. So God's grace in our lives, which gives us a kind of outsized power to do good works, good works being works reflective of his goodness and not any human standards of goodness. So what's the relationship between grace and works? And the second part gets even more real. What if I don't see a lot of fruit in my own life? Now, I want to point out that, I, Nathan, over the years, as I've, as I've spoken around the U.S. and around the world, this is one of those questions that comes up over and over again. I can, I can guarantee it will happen at least once. So this is very much on many people's hearts. If, if you don't mind, Nathan, let me kick us off with a story from Dallas Willard. I think this will be helpful. 
as and I think it'll probably just give us the right. Oh side. yeah, I knew he was going to get in here. You knew it. Yeah, I'm, Dallas I'm not, Willard is sneaky. He shows up in a lot of places. He's sneaky, and I'm nothing if not predictable. And I find Dallas Willard extraordinarily helpful <laughs> on the subject. You know, Dallas Willard's definition of grace, I think, is very helpful too. He would say, "Grace is God doing through me what I can't do on my own." So the Lord. The Lord's strength. Grace coming is God you. doing through me what I can't do on my own. Correct. Okay. Just, yes. Just saying it back there so we get it. Yes, and I think, and he, the reason he would say that is because often the the standard definition you hear is grace is unmerited favor, and that might capture some aspect of it, but it's not very practically helpful. That's what Dallas would say. He'd he'd say you need something that gives you a little bit more of a purchase on it. But here's what here's the story. Dallas Willard used to say, and he said this a lot, that every church service should begin like an AA meeting, like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. It should begin with you standing up saying, hello, my name is Cameron McAllister, and I'm a recovering sinner. Not, I used to be a sinner, and now everything is better, everything's hunky-dory, but I am in the process, the active process of recovery. And Willard would talk a lot about AA, about the spiritual significance of it. He talks about it quite a bit in The Divine Conspiracy. But I think that that is a beautiful posture with which to begin here. I'm going to kick it over to you for a little bit here, Nathan. Yep. So the question, well, here's here's my problem with the question is that, and this is me kicking it back to you, is that the relationship between grace and faith and works and justification and these terms have have never been a problem for me. And so I I can in some ways see how certain readings of certain passages would seem to set up a tension there. But I I mean I I, I guess I grew up with a faith that didn't have a lot of internal conflict in it in the sense that I wasn't taught that there was a conflict between faith and science um, or between a lot of other kind of delineating things. And so this one is one where um I didn't I didn't grow up with this as a real existential difficulty within my faith. So maybe there's something either I was super shallow and not thoughtful about something, or but I can't quite put my finger on what that was. So you're absolutely right. It's a big question. Lots of people have it. How does this work out? Um and so I'm trying to learn the question, I think, in order to form a response to it as we go along. So I don't so is that, I guess that's a question I have for you. For those who are listening to this and you've thought, yeah, that's not really a big big issue for me. What do you do with people like us? Well, first of all, I think that your experience is a blessedly unusual one, Nathan. So that is, that's really good to hear. But I think what I would do is I would start by making a distinction that I think will be helpful. And that has to do with sin as bondage and then sin as something that you are that is no longer a form of bondage is still a factor in your life. So if you are before you surrender to Christ and in effect admit that you cannot save yourself and that you need his help before that happens scripture is clear and Paul is clear that you're in bondage to sin you're actually enslaved to sin. But once you become a Christian, you still struggle, you still make mistakes, 
you're not perfect yet. You still see through a glass darkly, but you are no longer enslaved. So that's where I think the AA example can be a helpful one. So you're not. Yeah. Well, can I an, can I give another? Yeah. Go ahead. Let me. Yeah. Let me try another. Let me try another analogy here. So, because um, we're talking primarily about how we conceive ourselves and our identity as Christians, and and what's the proper way to refer to ourselves. So you have Paul always referring to believers as saints. And then I know a pretty good chunk of Christians who can say, I can only see myself as a miserable, wretched sinner. Uh, those are kind of seemingly two extremes. The, the, the illustration, tell me if you think this works. So when I was in college, I ran track and cross country. So that me- meant hours a day and a lot of miles per week that I ran. And I would say I'm a runner at that phase of my life. Now, that's not a core part of who I am anymore. So I sometimes run, but my primary identity is not as a runner. I think a similar thing happens in our, in our pre-salvation experience where we're sinners. And that's a, a foundational part of our identity. When, when we're saved by the grace of God, uh, that's not to say that we don't sometimes sin. It's just to say that that's not our primary identity anymore. And so for me, that, there's a distinction there of what's the, what's the core of what it is that I always do and is a habitual action and a posture and a position that gives me an identity. Therefore, you have that if anyone is in Christ, their new creation, Paul's language there, that makes that switch over into saying, you're a saint now who sometimes sins rather than a sinner who's never a saint. So that fits in, I think, with what you were saying there of, of how we perceive what it is that our key identity is and then what the outworkings of that behavior would be. You think, does that work? Yeah, I mean, and I think the what I'm trying to get out there, get at there as well, goes along with what you've been saying. It's the difference between bondage and a and a struggle. So sin remains a struggle in your life, okay. but it's no longer it's no longer a form of ongoing bondage. And I think that is a very meaningful distinction. But understanding that that predisposition is still there and being realistic about it. That's why Willard is using the AA model. So that you understand that you have mm-hmm. a tendency and you've got you've got these weaknesses and these vulnerabilities. So therefore, what you want to do is come up with a plan. And see, this is where we can let's let's I think this will bring us into some interesting territory here, Nathan, as well, because we need to include our own will and intentionality as we talk about this, because you don't just drift into a healthy life and you don't just drift into an avoidance of temptation you have to be you have to be smart about it you have to plan for it and willard would often say you have to have a plan and that i think is the part where sometimes in the north american church we struggle because we have placed a huge emphasis on the importance of getting belief right and we have very we've underemphasized obedience it's a really strange state of affairs, but that has been happening here for a long time. But you and I, Nathan, have been pointing to the fact that we've kind of reached a juncture in our cultural moment where people care a lot more about who you are rather than what you believe. They want something more holistic, but also in our own lives, stressing nothing but the accuracy of belief is going to leave us in a pretty bad position if we haven't learned the absolute vital significance of obedience. And we've if we've well, if we've left that part the, out. Yeah. 
th- well, there's a reason for that. So, so the, the de-emphasis on obedience comes as a hyper-reaction to works-based salvation. So if I, I can't tell you the number of times I've been in conversations or in conversations with anybody else who would say, at the moment that I am mentioned, obedience is part of the Christian faith. Everybody jumps on my head and says that I'm talking about legalism and works-based salvation. And so there's this hyper... Absolutely. Now, yep. works-based salvation is a is a heresy from the beginning. Um, so that's... And, and Paul makes the case that that's not even what the Jewish system is based on as far as re, in relationship to God either. But what I'm saying is, is that part of it is, I think if you're struggling with this question, recognize that you're living in a specific Christian context in which there's a hypersensitivity, if not flat out rejection, that the gospel would actually change your life. Now, if you're hearing me say that and the hackles are raising, <laughs> your hackles are getting up there, that's right, because that means you've been reading your Bible and it means that there are passages in here that are going to be extremely difficult to reconcile with that. But if you get beyond John three sixteen and look at the rest of what Jesus said, this should not surprise us at all. But part of all that to say, part of the the context in which, it, particularly in America, if you're listening to this, recognize that that is going to influence some of the way that people talk about these things. Absolutely, and I think it's also worth pressing into a more fulsome definition of belief. So let me try something out on you, Nathan. I have found though that if I choose to do the wrong thing, if I revert to sin. At this point, I've I've subjected this to a lot of, I think, introspection. And I, I'm at the point where I would say at the root of that is unbelief. And the unbelief can take a couple of different forms. So yes, I'm literally saying doing the wrong thing repeatedly at the root of that, I believe is unbelief. I believe is unbelief. Because it has to do with either... <laughs> well, okay. Yeah. Well, hold on, hold on. Either a disbelief that well, God I, has us, God God knows what's best for me, and God has has my best interest in mind. It often has to do with an erroneous notion that I can take care of myself, and I truly know what I need. And sometimes, if if it's really bad, I can just think, well, you know, if if Jesus just knew all of the complexities of my particular situation and my circumstances, then he would know that I really need to go in this direction. So at the root of so much wrongdoing is actually unbelief as well. But we need to, under, we need to recover a more holistic definition of belief. All right, Nathan, sorry. Oh, yeah. I was trying to decide if you were pausing for dramatic effect or pausing. So, no, I was going to say, I see you're Willard and I raise you a Willard, because I think it was also Willard who said that to say you believe something is to live like it's true. Right, exactly. And and so you, you get in there that balance of to say that I believe it means that my life is shaped by that truth. So that fits beautifully with what you were just saying there as and far as... Practically if, speaking... If I'm not experiencing this, then I'm Yeah, actually, well, I mean, practically yeah. speaking, one of the most... I mean, fundamental beliefs is, or questions that you can encounter is, do you trust Jesus? Do you trust him with your life? Do you think he holds the keys to reality? Do you think he is the master of all? Do you think he's the smartest person in the world? Do you think he has everything under his control? Do you think he understands life and your life in particular? And that's where we often, when when I press into my own life, I see 
various sources of unbelief. And my prayer often has to be, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So I think, yeah, because when you, and then I know, Nathan, you wanted to bring in James here, because James gets at kind of some of the the epistemic, I think, qualities of belief, because the, the simple fact of the matter is, belief, full belief, always results in action. For the most part, if you if you really believe what your doctor is telling you and that this is some vital medical advice, then the 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 completion of your belief and trust in your doctor will be doing as he's prescribed. And the same applies here. And yet we have we've got this kind of separation that's taken place in recent years between belief on the one hand, and that's belief viewed as Something really nothing more than an intellectual commitment, and then the shape of our actual lives and the things that we mm-hmm. do. And we've drawn this, we've put this wall of separation between the two. It's a totally artificial wall, but it obscures from us the fact that we often, I think at the root of a lot of this, is that we we really are struggling with whether we trust Jesus with our lives. All right, th- three things. Let me, let me... Speed up the the difficulties here. Um, so, three things based off of what you've been saying there. One is this is not the total definition, but it's very important that probably at least annually you're doing a study of the word faith as it's used in Scripture as it pertains to confidence and loyalty. So, faith is is not a one time confession; it's a posture of confidence and fidelity to the ways and the teachings of Christ and an acceptance of taking things on his term, which one of the difficulties of that is receiving things as grace and as a gift. There are parts of different personalities and I'm one of those that has trouble with that. So the confidence part, are you confident in Christ? And then the loyalty part, are you living with fidelity to his teachings, even when you can't see the end of the big picture? So there's that part of that. Let's remember that that is, um, a key biblical part of what it means to have faith in something or someone. Second thing is you're talking about belief and sin and untrust. We want to, just in case we don't remember to come back around to it, grace is not the only gift of God. (laughs) Um, There's a lot of other, and the Holy Spirit is, is a huge part of that. And we're talking about grace and faith here. You have the Titus too. It's the grace of God that brings salvation, that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and live upright, self-controlled and godly lives in this present age. Um, so God, by his spirit enables us, uh, self-control is a huge part of this. It's part of the fruit of the spirit. It's something that's expected of all of us. But one of the neat things that I think happens as you're making that transition from the old self to the new self through God's work in your life is that someone explained it to me once that there, you see this progression in children, I think, where they'll do something bad and then they feel bad about it after they've done it. So maybe they drew on the wall with the crayons and then then realized, oh no, I shouldn't have done this. Then there's a moral progression where in the act of doing something, you feel bad about it. And then there's the development where you can conceptualize the bad thing before you do it and feel bad about it and not do it. A similar thing happens, I think, in the sanctification process with sin is that when you're in bondage, to use the, the category that Cameron was using there, you do bad stuff and you don't even think about it. And then maybe there's a consequence to it on the other end, but eh, not so much. What happens with conviction 
is that then the Spirit of God starts to convict you while you're doing something in the act thereof, and that's part of the growth process. And then, and I'm not saying that Christians move into a sinless state, but I do think that the Spirit gives a warning to the conscience and the soul of the human, to our inmost being before we do some stupid stuff also. And so there's a preemptive, there's a progression there in our uh, keeping in step with the Spirit that then does lead us into having the ability to live with struggle, not bondage. And that's the work of the Spirit as well. Now, now that I got that that out of my system. Yeah. Well, that's huge. Yeah, go ahead and comment on that before I move on. Yeah, well, no, because that I think that takes us into part two of the question about, you know, anxiety regarding a lack of fruit in our lives, which is a very serious and important question. But I think that awareness that you pinpointed is so important. So one of the key insidious features of being enslaved to sin or in bondage is yet you're out of touch with reality and your conscience has been deadened. I remember, I always liked the way, you know, Professor John Lennox put this. He would say, your conscience is an outpost of God's government. So, when you have a healthy conscience... Hang on, let's, and when let's, that, let's say, that sen- yeah. say, that sen- say that sentence one more time. Yeah, so John Lennox says, your conscience is an outpost of God's government. There's a lot there. That's very rich. Hmm. Now, if that's true... You can see what a grave danger we're in if our sensitivities have been dulled and if our conscience has been dulled. So when you start to, and it's, so, oh boy, this is going to be interesting now, Nathan, because I think we're going to navigate with sensitivity, but we're going to have to push back on some cultural notions of mental well-being here. Shocking. Shocking. But here's the thing. Conviction of sin, a troubled conscience, these are things that will make you feel bad. And they will make you feel bad about yourself to a degree. And it's it's good. It's healthy. Now, you don't want to go too, f- you know, this can go too far. There can be, there is such a thing as morbid introspection. There is such a thing as you having a completely tarnished view of yourself. But when you're brought to the place where you recognize your human limitations, you recognize how grave your fallenness and your sin actually is, you can come to the place where you recognize that you need to be saved and that you do indeed need a savior. So that is healthy. So often in those moments where you do feel bad about yourself, if you if you look at your life when you're troubled, those are actually signs of, according to what Nathan's been saying and according to what I've been saying, those are signs of spiritual health because now you're starting to recognize your actual condition. You don't want to stay there, of course. You don't want to stay in a permanent you know, state of you know, feeling like you're wading through the mire, but you do want to, you want to be in touch with reality regarding your condition, and you do, but the hope is that when you're in that place, you are reaching out to Christ and asking for his help. And yes, this is where we do have to be intentional with our lives. And I'd love to hear Nathan talk a little bit more about this. This is why it's absolutely vital that we're part of a church, part of a real community, a body, where we are held accountable, where we are encouraged to. We talk a lot about holding each other accountable. 
We talk a lot about, you know, we, we do want to confess our sins to one another as well. That is, that is incredibly helpful, but you also desperately need to be encouraged as well. There are uplifting tasks and edifying tasks of the church as well. This is why you get to hear the gospel. You get to worship the Lord in spirit and truth. All of these are vital habits to get you right side up so that you can see the world as it actually is. You see yourself as you are, which can be painful for a time, but don't stay there. Because if you see yourself as you actually are in Christ, you're a new creation in him. And then you can start to take hold of the saint language that's used. And it will start to make sense to you. And so you're realistic, but you're pressing into that new vision and you're walking forward. So I've said a lot there. Nathan, <laughs> rescue <laughs> no, us from all the confusion well, I've so, created. Well, well, let me let me try a simple, um, I'm just making this up, um, an, an kind of an analogous word picture. I think what Cameron is saying is that when you're sensing difficulty, frustration, or unease, that often is the gift of God. It's sort of like the rumble strips on the interstate. They're not a good place to drive. Uh, and you're going to vibrate your teeth eventually, but they're there for a purpose. And it means you're on the edge of where you ought not to be. And if you continue in this way, there are going to be catastrophic things in your life. So the inconvenience of the rumble strip is there as a safety protection and measure to get you back on the right track, not in order to make your life miserable. So I think that sort of is part of the the working of the spirit. When you look at John 16, 17, around in there, actually back in 14 too, Jesus says that when he sends the spirit, it'll do a couple things. It'll convict of sin being the first one. That, that, that is what the Holy Spirit does is it convicts us of sin. And he sees that as a good thing and as a gift and as a reason that he needs to leave in order that the Spirit can come and do that. Now, there's the guiding in truth, there's the teaching, there's the glorifying the Son and the Father. Those are all important roles of what Jesus lays out there that the Spirit will do. But I think it's interesting that conviction is seen as a gift. And so if you're wrestling around with some of these things, you're driving on the rumble strip down the side of the interstate, thank God for that. And But try to figure out what that means and where you need to go. Don't think that, oh, I have to drive on the... Uh, rumble strip all the way to Georgia. Um, that's not what God has intended for us. So there's there's that piece and there's that element of that there for us. The other thing is that part of this conviction thing, I, I remember as a young man, my, my grandfather once told me, if you want to feel really spiritual, don't get close to God. Mm. <laughs> and that sounds counterintuitive, yep. but if you look at the deepest experiences that people have had with God, biblically speaking, and those who you know in your life who have real experiences with God, it's never like, oh, hey, why do angels say fear not as their first line of speaking? Why do people crawl around in the dirt on their face and think they're going to die when they encounter God? It's not because it's a warm, fuzzy moment. Well, yeah, woe is me the... for I, yeah, I'm a man of unclean yeah, exactly. clean lips from a people of unclean lips. All the prophets all the way to Peter say that. Yeah. So Isaiah wasn't like, wow, I can't wait to blog about this. Um that's not that's not the biblical model <laughs> of an encounter. Yeah, that's not the biblical model of an encounter with God. So the tension that we sense often is a measure of God's grace in and of itself. If you weren't experiencing that and were sinning, then I think you would have reason to be cautious about what in the world's going on here. Um, but if the if the Lord has saved you, then He's done that for a purpose and will give you the alarm bells necessary. And the discomfort. I often pray that for people. Lord, make them uncomfortable. Make me uncomfortable until I'm in right relationship with you mm -hmm. so that mm -hmm. I can be brought back around into that. Cameron, can I just 
I'm talking a lot here. Sorry. Can I just make re- make reference to That's two great. scriptures quickly so we can set aside the structural thing yeah. and then move into the second half of the question um, just to jump back. So everybody's going to point to a verse like Ephesians 2, and there's a lot to it. Um, let's start with verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I think there's a sense there in which sometimes we get stuck in verse 8 and forget everything that just came before it. And we miss that the purpose of that salvation is for us to do good works. But we say, look, our salvation is a gift to us from God. Therefore, how do works play in it? Because the beginning of verse 9 says not by works. Well, then you're going to flip over and you're going to get into something um, like James 2.24. And he writes, see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. And then people start throwing yellow flags on the plane saying, yep, but Paul and James are in total contradiction with each other here. Look at what's going on. Um, I just want to say a couple of things quickly about that before we go on, because that might be a question you have. One of those is that um, there's a great commentary, the letter of James by Luke Timothy Johnson. For those of you who are okay reading a Catholic theologian on the book of James, I found it to be extremely readable, not done with it yet, but he has some just great introductory stuff. And I, and I love the way that he phrases some of that. And he's talking about, he just, he spends pages obliterating the notion that there's any uh, tension between James and Paul. Um, and in some, in reference to some of these specific verses, he says the terms and the respective sentences have quite different reference. And that's a very important phrase. The terms and the respective sentences have quite different reference. And what he's saying is that when Paul is talking about not being saved by work so that no one can boast, he's clearly talking about the Old Testament law. And this is a massive thing that Paul is always in argumentation with people of saying, where does your righteousness come from? You can think of Romans 3. Now a righteousness apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The law and the prophets testify to this coming new form of righteousness that comes from God, but they in and of themselves are not the foundation of legalistic righteousness. So, and Paul can say, hey, I kept all of that. And it's worthless. It doesn't mean anything. So it's been by, it is by grace you have been saved and not by your legalistic righteousness works that you are saved. However, the point that James is making, if you read a little earlier there in chapter two, he's saying, look, God out of his grace interacted with Abraham, Abram at the time. And the thing that Abram did in expressing his willingness to sacrifice his son was the deepest form of work that expresses belief. He thought that God was going to f- do what God had promised to do, even when it didn't make sense. And so he's saying that Abraham's faith was justified by his works. It's not, I mean, the law didn't even exist when Abraham did that. Moses wasn't on the scene yet. And so of course it isn't that. But James is making the case, if you do have this covenant loyalty and fidelity to God, and you trust and believe God using the definitions of the terms that Cameron and I have laid out that we've totally ripped off from the New Testament, then there isn't a way in which that doesn't have an actual physical repercussion in the world and the relationships around you in which you live. So work is, there are two different works that are being referred to there in the context of both of those passages help us make that distinction. Um, And so that's a good little trick. How is this word being used in this sentence? And how is it being used in this sentence? And what is it referring to in the passages um, before and after it? And, And we find a very healthy and robust fullness to Christian expression when we do that. So, okay. I'm done with my little exegetical soapbox there. We can move on to something else. But if you want to comment on that, that's good too. 
Well, let's just let's let's look at Abraham really quickly again, just and bring back in my little epistemic definition of belief. God made astronomical, <laughs> cosmic promises to Abraham, and it would have been very understandable if Abraham had said, "Absolutely, yes, Lord," and then had just chosen to stay put and not go anywhere, right? But if that had been the case, I think you could have very you could have drawn the very sound conclusion that he did not actually believe the promise. Yeah. So his belief, part one side of the coin of his belief, there's the physical, af- there, so there's the verbal affirmation, right? The assent. And then there's the follow through. That's the way, that's the way belief works. That's just the way that, that characterizes all human action and all human reflection and thought. And well, so- we lose sight of that for some reason yeah, especially in the modern world, but yeah. So, I mean, so if, if you're listening to this and we're thinking about what does it mean to be saved, great conversation there. But let me let me run this by you, Cameron, because this might be at the heart of some of the question. Mm. Is So when we talk about ontology, we talk about the core of our being and the foundation of our essential identity. Mm-hmm. And so what Christ is offering us in the salvation experience is a new ontology or way of being in, an act, in, a, in a literal and I'm using the word literally there, a literally new identity. Yeah. That's the, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Yep. So the question is, and it goes on to say, and all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us a ministry of reconciliation. But how is it that I could be so ontologically united with Christ that my sin would be paid for by him and his righteousness would be imputed upon me and have that ontological connection be so deep that both of those things are true and it not influence the way that I live my life. Right. Yeah. So you, is mean, that, yeah. is that even categorically possible? Yeah. So if, yeah, if you are in union with the infinite and living God, it necessarily will spill over. But I think just, well, I mean, so what, yeah. well, one of the ways, let me, let me just say this real quick and then, and then get your wisdom on this. So it's kind of like I was teaching on union with Christ somewhere recently and I said to my wife, hey, if I was duct taped to a tiger, do you think you would notice? Um, right, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, you, that would be disruptive. <laughs> I mean, something would be different there. So if, if I'm in union with Christ, should somebody notice? I guess now I'm asking my question. Well, yes, the obvious answer is absolutely they, they should. But if that sounds very discouraging to some of you listening, hang in there. Listen to this. Let me say, let me just say something important here. We're talking about how, in some ways, the beginning of a mature spiritual journey and relationship with the living God, that it looks a little bit like, woe is me, for I am a person of unclean lips, from a people of unclean lips. Okay, that's an accurate response to an encounter with a holy God. It doesn't feel good either, because you're seeing yourself for what you actually are. You're, you're getting an accurate picture of your condition. Now, let's stay here for just a second. Because one of the most harmful assumptions of our day right now is that you should, in your life, experience as little emotional distress as possible. And that you should, so in, in essence, that you should feel good all the time. So let's just, we could do a whole podcast on that assumption. It's absolutely untrue. <laughs> yeah, well, first so of all, just, it's absolutely just... untrue. It runs completely counter to the nature of reality, but also it's very, very bad for you. 
it's very bad for your moral development. If you always feel good about yourself, you're probably a pretty dangerous person to be around. If you are a person who walks around and says, hey, I have zero regrets, that is not a good thing to say. If you are a person who's interested in other people, who cares about other people, and who wants to improve, then you've got to recognize your limitations. You've got to recognize that you mess things up. And you have to be willing to feel bad about yourself sometimes if you actually have a holistic vision of yourself and reality in the grand scheme of life. So let's just, if you feel bad about yourself, and if you don't have that same sense of assurance that seems to characterize so many people outside the church, again, it's it's going to be, this is going to sound, this is wisdom counter to the world. You're actually experiencing a blessing. Because those who think they've got it all together are actually profoundly misled. They don't have it all together. And pride is one of the greatest sources. If it is indeed pride, it's one of the greatest sources of blindness on the planet. So opening our eyes to our own condition is often exquisitely painful. And again, you don't want to stay there because also when you see your full condition, you'll also recognize Yes, you're fallen, you're broken, but you're also a child of God. And Christ has, if you're a Christian, he has rescued you, and you get to be in an interactive relationship with him right here, right now, where you get to experience newness of life here and now in this world with soaring gas prices and declining populations and Putin with his finger hovering above a red button and war in Ukraine and all of the trials and the difficulties and, you know, relationships breaking down and illnesses. Yes, this fallen world, you truly, you can experience newness of life right here, right now. All you need to do is walk with Christ. And again, full-bodied belief means you are actually, you're, you're, you, you believe him and so you obey him. Belief and obedience go hand in hand. Yeah, well, I mean, and part of what we're saying is that there isn't really a meaningful distinction between the two almost. No, exactly. I mean, linguistically there is, but I mean, they're, yeah. They're distinguishable, so, Cameron, but let you me, can't separate them. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great line. Distinguishable, but not separable. Um, yeah, that's that's helpful. So, you know, the person who wrote in and... I, there's there's a real heartfelt part to this of saying, well, what if I doesn't f- feel like I'm producing anything of real substance in my life, mm. and I seem to be a failure at some of these other categories? Sometimes I think it's helpful for me to back up and ask the question of what is a successful Christian life. And sometimes we can kind of blur the distinction of what worldly success is, and then read that back into Scripture to say that I need to have these outworkings of success in order for me to be a person of substance. Um, the son of man has, you know, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Jesus didn't have substance. Um, private property is not a guarantee for disciples. Uh, bed of roses, certainly not crucifixion, more likely. Uh, so there's there's a deep wrestle there with the hard reality of what Jesus teaches. That might be part of the reason we want to like, ah, run away. Um, but so so there's that element to it. So I think there are things in which, for me, it's helpful to say, okay, what did Jesus actually promise? Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, says that actually Christian community is not a promise. It's a delightful thing if you have it, but there's nowhere in Scripture that you're guaranteed to have that. 
So there, those of you listening in uh, 59 countries, if our metrics are right, many of which I bet you can't go to church <laughs> and worship in public with a other mm. bunch of people, or maybe you're in the States or another um, more uh, liberal democracy where you just don't have Christian fellowship around you. Mm-hmm. So if you have Christian fellowship, thank God for that. I think that's Bonhoeffer's line. You know, somebody who wrote from prison has this perspective. Um, there's a loneliness to it sometimes. Absolutely. So there are things that we can thank God for, but not demand or expect to have, and certainly not use as a metric of our own spiritual condition if they don't align with the American dream, so to speak. So that's something to be reminded of and to be helpful of. And then the other one for me that's important, Cameron, is for me to try to figure out what's what's God's job and what's Nathan's job in response to that. So that's one of the things I ask myself daily. Who's in charge of this? And what's my responsibility as a result of it? And so recognizing that this is my father's world, and then I have responsibilities that are derivative of the fact that he's the one who's in control, then that seems to give me uh, a a peace, even when there's difficult things that need to be done, because I recognize who's actually... I've, I'm always wearied when I'm trying to do God's job, and he's never honored when, when I'm doing that. Um, and on the other hand, he won't do what he's asking me to do sometimes too. So... That's that's part of it, I think, is daily saying, Lord, what do you want me to see? What do you want me to know? What do you want me to hear? How do you want me to grow? Would you provide the opportunities for me to be faithful and obedient to you in doing this? And so the story of scripture is that God moves first. God created, God created, God created. Genesis sets us up to say humans are secondary characters um, in existence and in what God is doing. God is the prime, he's the He's the guy who did it. Who Who does it? That's the question that Genesis is asking. And the answer to that is, God does it. And then because God does it and creates you (laughs) and everybody else, he has real things for us to do. And so the question is, do we have the confidence? Do we have the belief? Do we trust him to say, you know what? You created this all. You've given me life. I woke up this morning. And the reason that I'm alive is because you have something for me to do. Yeah. Now that's suddenly exciting. Would you reveal to me by your spirit what that is? And don't ask him. I'm a This is where I always mess it up. Lord, I have four options and I'd like to hear your options so I can pick one of the five options as the thing to do for the day. No, that's not how that works. Say, Lord, I will do what you want me to do if you show to me, if you show me what that is. And that sincere prayer will be answered. You know, we almost can't leave this, um, Cameron, without quoting Willard. We started on a little Willard fest there. So let's end with a Willard quote of him saying, when you're trying, when you're in these situations and you're trying to figure out what to do, do the next right thing that you know to do. So maybe don't worry about three years down the road. Ask the Lord, what is the next thing that you would have me do? And do that well. And I've found that when I don't know what to do next in life, do an excellent job at what you do know you're supposed to be doing. And then God will grow and shape and form you in that position in order that you will be prepared for the next thing that he has for you. You actually can't guess that in advance. The Lord is probably shaping you for a task that doesn't even exist yet but you'll need the skills that you're developing now in the situation that you're growing in in order to be faithful to meet that need in the future. God has done this all throughout history in the lives of every single Christian, and so there's not even statistically a good reason to doubt that he isn't doing the same thing for you. And so that's the question. Are we saved by the law and our obedience to Leviticus? Absolutely not. Our salvation comes as a gift to us from God, and because we have confidence in him for our eternity, we can also have confidence in him for the day-to-day parts of our lives. It's ridiculous to think that Jesus loves you enough to save you for eternity, but not enough to teach you how to live now. And so let's lean into that and step into that. And I think as we do that, we're reading the scripture faithfully, 
We're in as good a communion and fellowship with other Christians as we can. We're all functioning under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We're being thankful for the conviction that he brings. The rumble strips are a blessing. And as we do this, a peace will form in us that transcends all understanding and be a wonderful witness to the world. It will honor and glorify the Lord, and it will be good for our neighbors and good for us as well. That's a big task. None of us are fully there yet. We're all growing in that direction, and we appreciate um, you thinking along with us, but not just thinking along, but also growing and developing in your Christ-likeness as we're seeking to be disciples together on this journey. Thanks for your great questions. Again, if you have questions you'd like to hear us address, we won't probably be able to get to them all, but please shoot us an email, questions at toltogether.com. Again, that's questions at toltogether.com. And if you found this content helpful, share it with a friend. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. And um, until next time, you've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.